Today's Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah 32, 1 to 3, and 6 to 15. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined to the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give the city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord has come to me. Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field of Anathoth, because as nearest relative, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard, and he said, buy my field of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that it was the word of the Lord, so I bought it. I bought the field of Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed it out for the 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, and the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and the witnesses who had signed the deed, and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of the purchase, and put them in the clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. Let's pray for our time together. Father, we pray that you would make this ancient text come alive for us. It seems so distant and so foreign. How could it be relevant to our lives as they are lived here in modern America? I pray that you would make it so. And whether we are here this morning because this is where we're always On Sunday morning, this is the place that we come eager to learn, eager to serve, eager to use our gifts. Whether we're here looking in from somewhere else, perhaps considering whether in town could be a place that we could link our gifts to for your mission in the world, or maybe we don't have any of these questions. Our questions are much more foundational. Are you real? Are you trustworthy? Lord, I pray that you would in each of these questions, show up in your person, show up in your might, show up in your grace. And would you make yourself alive? Would you incarnate the life of Jesus to us again, that this letter, this prophecy wasn't given just to the readers back then, but it was given to us. And I pray that as we leave, we would believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. I went to see the the latest Avengers movie this last week, even though it didn't 
have Superman in it. Uh, as many of you know, that's, you know, the greatest uh, hero, Earth's mightiest hero, and he's my favorite. He wasn't in it, of course, because he is DC and not Marvel, but also he wasn't in it because if Superman, Superman was in it, you wouldn't need all the other Avengers. There would just be <laughs> Superman. And they knew this back in 1978, the superhero blockbuster tentpole event of that year was Superman the movie. And in this movie, the news media catches wind of a mysterious person who'd been buying up these huge swaths of land in the middle of nowhere in the American Southwest, land that no one wanted, and this person was buying it up, miles and miles of it, and was paying top dollar for it. Who was this? Anyone know? Lex Luthor, of course. It has to be Lex Luthor. Seems ludicrous. Who would want this land? Who would pay for more than it's worth? They're just flushing money down the tube. But he's, all, he's buying up all this useless land because he plans to detonate a nuclear bomb on the San Andreas Fault, the result of which would obviously be for most of California to fall into the ocean, leaving him with fantastically valuable real estate, beachfront property. It's a totally believable premise. <laughs> These strange purchases make people think that he must have had a reason, that he wasn't just crazy. Well, he did, and he wasn't. The prophet, Jeremiah, seemed a little crazy to people. And he had been speaking to what remained of Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem for close to 40 years without any great revival without anyone saying, you know what, Jeremiah, you're right. Anything to validate his ministry, and he's an old man now. And he's been saying all these years, repent, change your ways, throw off your selfish desires and return to your calling. Don't just claim to trust in God, but bring your life into conformity with that claim. In other words, act as followers of God, which means loving Him and serving others. Otherwise, Israel and then Judah, you presume upon God's grace, and you have for quite some time. You've made a sham of true religion. You've made a sham of my calling to you. But his words have fallen mostly on deaf ears, or beyond that, uh, hostile ears. And the king of Judah, Zedekiah, has thrown him into prison. He's so tired of Jeremiah speaking truth to power, he throws him into prison to shut him out. But what God is telling Jeremiah that he wants him to tell Judah is that reality is far different than it appears. Jerusalem has no chance against this encroaching Babylonian army, which is now occupying most of Judah, and is knocking on the door of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to fall. And Zedekiah, the one that has imprisoned Jeremiah, his reign is as good as over. And God tells Jeremiah to do something very ludicrous, very outrageous to substantiate 
that belief, that reality is different than what everyone is looking at and seeing in front of them. He wants him to buy back this parcel of land, and he uses this word redeem because it has been part of his family, but it's now owned by his cousin and something indeterminate has happened. The cousin has perhaps fallen on hard times and needs to offload this piece of property, which, oh, by the way, is completely worthless because it's now under the control, most likely at that point, or will be soon, of Babylon. And so it's far from worth anything. But verse 15, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. In other words, God is saying to Jeremiah, there is a future for this land that you can't see yet. And there's a future for you, Jeremiah. There's a future for Israel, Judah, that they are still a part of God's story. He is still embracing them despite them turning His calling into a sham, not for a few months, not for a few years, but for decades and decades. And God is saying to Jeremiah, I promise you, I promise you that this will not be the end of Israel or His plan for the world. And He's asking Jeremiah to buy into that hope, to buy into that promise in a literal fashion. God is describing for Jeremiah a future that exists as surely as does the present. And He invites Jeremiah and by extension Israel and Judah and then us to live into that future reality now. The immediate circumstances made this purchase make zero sense, financial or otherwise. God says, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And if I was Jeremiah, my question would be, okay, when? When is this going to pay off for me? Not for my ancestors, not 70 years from now. But how are you going to make it evident to me that my purchase, my investment of this land is not ludicrous? Because maybe I'm willing to live by faith and not by sight for a time, but that's hard to maintain without some tangible evidence, without some proof, without some documentation that our hope is worthwhile. We soon begin to feel a little bit cheated. If Babylon's swords and horses and chariots, their raw power, which is so much more than Israel could possibly muster, if those things are the final word on reality, if they represent, in fact, what is actually going on in the world ultimately, then what Jeremiah is doing is wasteful, and it's irrational, and it's impractical. But if not, if there's something else going on that is more connected with ultimate reality, though not yet seen, if in fact God's voice is the one, the thing that determines ultimate reality, then Jeremiah's actions are the height of wisdom, and he's being very courageous. If you remember in the mid-2000s, people 
were making crazy money in the housing market. These huge investment banks were just printing money, unheard of returns on their investment. But not only the big banks, but middle-class investors were doubling their investment in a year or two. And The Big Short is a book, film, that tells the story about these crazy, irrational investors, and there was only a few of them, who believed this great money-printing enterprise that had no end actually did have an end. They believed it was all a house of cards, and they staked their careers on it. They invested over and over again over the course of months, even when it continued to look like they were throwing good money after bad. They purchased fields of Anathoth, as it were, in the form of these complicated investment instruments that hardly anyone understood if they had heard of it, in order to bet against this roaring housing market during a time when people, like ordinary people like you and I, were buying houses not to live in them and not even to necessarily rent them out. People were buying houses as middle-income people just to wait, just to let them sit, paying the mortgage on it, knowing that in a year or two, that house would be worth double what they had invested in. Now, the thing is, that equity was very real for a time. But Steve Eisman, Michael Burry, Greg Lippman, they looked at the underlying financial conditions, and they saw that this reality was passing, that that equity was real at the time, but would not be at some point in the future. It was foolish and preposterous to short the housing market. But in a very real sense, the ones that were being laughed at, the ones whose careers were going down the tubes because they were using their own and other people's money to invest against the housing market, they were the ones living in the world as it actually was or at least as it was about to be. To simply look at those spreadsheets to believe the numbers were correct, that would not be faith as the Bible understands it. But they acted upon their convictions. They bought into the hope that their numbers were actually right. They activated their hope. And Jeremiah's job was to help Judah do the same, to activate hope in these promises that they had always had but were not living by, to live by what God said was ultimate reality, to live by a promised future. In our hyper-intellectualized world and in a religious culture generally that perceives of faith in very cognitive terms, we need stories like this. We need pictures and images like this, that faith is not synonymous with belief, that faith is not just believing in a set of propositions about God, but faith is relational trust, and that hope is more than just mere 
persuasion. I believe that this will be true someday. It's more than just a wish or a desire that the future can possibly be or probably will be different. But it's a conviction that lies at the heart level, at the gut level, at the emotion level, not just simply at the cognitive level, that is then evidenced by concrete action, that is then lived in light of. It's embodied. So you see, if believing that God can restore a broken relationship is one thing, but that doesn't cost us anything. That's somewhat easy to believe. It doesn't demand anything, but hope, you see, imagines a future reality in which that relationship can be restored, and faith knocks on that person's door. Faith walks towards that person so that God can show up in that embodied relationship. Jeremiah does something that most prophets won't do. He puts his money where his proverbial mouth is. He buys into hope. Now, every few years, we read about this or that prophet, self-proclaimed, usually with a tiny following, who says that this particular date will be the rapture, will be the apocalypse. What we don't hear is about that prophet giving away the title of their home to an orphanage down the street to buy into this prediction they've made. What we don't hear about is them liquidating their retirement fund to feed hungry people. You see, they have a belief about the future. They have an opinion, maybe a, quite a strong opinion, but that's not the faith and hope that Jeremiah talks about, that the Bible talks about. You see, they are hedging their bets. They equivocate on their belief. Now, it's easy to pick on those guys because they're always wrong, it seems like, and they also are a little bit strange most of the time. But to those of us who inhabit sensible Christianity, can't so much of our lives be lived out of a hedge, out of equivocation as well? We say that we believe in this promised future, but we are constantly in our daily life hedging our bets. Even though you see this story is very ancient, very culturally distant, Jeremiah is facing literal swords, literal armies. He's making a literal purchase on this field that's already occupied. This strange purchase is eminently relevant, and it's much more similar to our daily lives than we might first think, because what Jeremiah depicts in dramatic fashion is the result of the very same choice that we face every single day in superficially minor decisions. Every day, you and I get out of, out of bed and we live by a story. We live by a reality that we believe in. We live by a hope that something can take place. And that's how we go about our decisions. And sometimes, even if we are Christians, we hedge against the bet that God's promised reality is actually going to take place. We overwork as a hedge against, against an unknown future. 
We overstress our mind and our body, worrying about tomorrow because we have lots of beliefs about God, but we have a little bit less relational trust. And we better put in the hours. We better earn the money that we need for the future. We make choices of whether I will overfixate on ne- negative comments because I'm overdependent upon others' opinions rather than the stable love and affection of God. We're faced with choices. Will I over-save? Will I over-protect my time? Instead of creating margins in both of those areas in which I can embody service, that I can invite people into to alleviate their stress and to lift their burdens. The claim that God is the ultimate reality underneath the world that we live in, the claim that He is the nevertheless to all that is sad and broken and untrue about our world, it's easy to state. It's somewhat easy to believe. It takes a little bit more commitment to show up here on a Sunday morning, to carve time out of your schedule. But it's fairly easy to say that this is the ultimate truth that I'm living by, but then walk into next week in exactly the same way we did the previous week, in exactly the same way and embodying the same values that most everyone else lives by. The thing about this, friends, is that this ultimate reality, this truth that we stake our lives on, supposedly, it will not be believed, even by us, if we don't practice embodiment, if we don't act to manifest it in our lives, it will die the death of a thousand minor superficial choices that undermine it. And we'll find ourselves later in life thinking, you know, I live like everyone else does. Why not I just change and conform my beliefs as well? It just causes me more relational angst than I need. You see, the reason is, is that we have a built-in hypocrisy radar. We call it our conscience. The Bible calls it our conscience. It also calls it the Holy Spirit. That we can notice the hypocrisy in our lives. And if we continue moving forward without addressing that hypocrisy, we will drive ourselves out of the things that we say that we believe into the truth that we actually live by. And so we have to address that hypocrisy or we simply ignore it. We disassociate. We move on, but we become less whole. We become more conflicted. We move into coping strategies. We move into medicating because we know something's wrong with us, but we can't live in that tension all that long. Faith and hope move into the world without total evidence, but not without any. Jeremiah's radical act of hope in the midst of what looked like a hopeless situation, you see, foreshadows another act very similar to his that is yet to come. Jeremiah's radical act of hope in the midst of this situation 
this elaborate public ceremony that is outlined for us in verses 10 through 15, all this sealing and witnessing and so forth, what is that about? What Jeremiah is doing is he's saying, you see this radical act, I want everyone to see it. God is asking him to make this as public as possible, to put his life and his future and his calling at stake for this promise. He wants everyone to see how imprudent and wasteful and subversive this act is. And it makes us think, or it should, of Jesus' elaborate journey into Jerusalem, his confrontation with the powers of the now, his confrontation with reality as it exists and those who mediate that reality on behalf of the state. He does this in a very elaborate, very public way so that everyone will see his wasteful, imprudent, subversive act. Just as Jeremiah's gesture would only make total sense in the evidence of Israel's return from exile, so Jesus' march into Jerusalem down to the way of the cross, it only makes total sense in light of His resurrection. And for us, these many years later, a life of faith and of action and of embodied relational trust, of choosing to give up our hedges, give up our equivocation, it only makes sense, friends, if our conviction is that we do that not on the base of, basis of total evidence, but not without any, because we know that not only did God do that back there with Jesus, that there was a historical event that we can stake our lives upon, but we live into the future where all of that will be legitimated, that He can do it again with us and with our world. And this is the promise. This is the updated promise. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. If you continue reading, you see this promised reality that far outstrips the significance of this, that is far more holistic and far more beautiful and yet far more difficult to believe. But God has said that in the cross, in the resurrection of Jesus, that you are buying into, you're investing in a world as it is and as it is becoming. Let's pray. Father, help us to make these decisions in our daily lives, to not see individual choices as insignificant, but help us to invest the tiny things that we spend our time doing, the tiny tasks that we have at work, the tiny acts of service. Help us to see them as Blakely encouraged us earlier to see them with eternal perspective and thus to invest happily, joyfully, radically. Father, I pray that as a church we would not hedge our bets, oversave, overtax ourselves, overstress, 
overgive our th- ourselves to things that aren't the main thing, but give us margins to serve one another. Give us margins to serve our friends outside these doors. And we pray that we would live into that promise that you are making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.